Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week, we're delivering another Best Of with MSNBC host and author of The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism, Steve Kornacki. The conversation is relevant as ever. How politics in the United States has become so tribal? Come on, that's every single day. Just take a look at Twitter. So Julie and I did do the 5K. I know you guys are waiting for that. We promise to update you on that endeavor next week. You certainly won't want to miss out on that conversation. But let's get right into the best of series. Without further ado, Steve Kornacki. So what's so quaint about reading about the early 90s is, or even the late 80s, is how much George Bush actually cared about the deficit and about bringing it down to the point where he would go against his own party's ideology to do that. By 2000, I think, you'd never have people crossing lines that way, except for the war, obviously, but um, because I think it really hardened positions that people weren't necessarily going to either work together for the betterment of the country or even cross their own ideological spectrum to do something that they thought was in the right interest of the country. And that, I think that's the other collision. Before there's a Gingrich-Clinton collision, there's a Gingrich-Bush collision, right. Bush Sr. And it's over taxes. Taxes is the, is the big fundamental question because Bush embodied this old um, sort of spirit of, of republicanism. You know, he technically claimed Texas is his home state, but he was a Yankee Republican. His father was a senator from Connecticut, very sort of patrician, upper crust New England. And the idea there was that you, it's, it's almost this like town father's model of governing. We make wise decisions. We make prudent decisions. He used the word, he used the, he used the word prudent. He was not an ideologue. He was not an attack dog politician. Um, but to get to the vice presidency, which he was, he was vice president of Ronald Reagan, the Republican Party had turned to, to the right under Reagan. Bush was his vice president, moved himself to the right to position himself to run for president. And then in 1988, um, as the Republican nominee, to try to fire up that Reagan base, which doubted him, which doubted he was really one of them, he gives that very famous promise. He says, Congress will push me and I will say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. And it brings the House down at the Republican convention and then two years later, as president, he's looking at massive deficits, you know, the economy's slowing down, and he says, you know, this, who he really is, is he's saying the prudent thing, the responsible thing here is we need to raise taxes. We need to get the deficit under control. And the old model of the Republican Party was to go along with him. And Bob Dole, who's the Republican leader in the Senate, goes along with him. Bob Michael, who was number one to Gingrich's number two in the House, his nickname was Mr. Nice Guy, goes along with him. All the Republican ranking members on the committees go along and they hold a big ceremony um, in the Rose Garden, the White House. The Democratic leaders in Congress, the Republican leaders in Bush, and they announced they've come up with a deal to raise taxes to get the deficit under control. And one doesn't go along with them and it's Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich says, he's the number two Republican in the House at the time, he says, this is a fundamental issue for Republicans. We don't raise taxes. We don't do deals with the Democrats to raise taxes. We cut taxes. We can't in good conscience vote for this deal. And he leads a rebellion on the House floor, October 1990, and this first deal gets killed on the House floor. Republicans kill it. They're the minority party. They kill their own president's deal. Bush has walked way out on a limb to do this deal, and Gingrich basically saws it off. And Bush then has to go back, and he cuts a new deal, this time almost all with Democrats. Almost. And from that moment on, Republicans took a lesson from that. They said, um, we're never going to raise taxes. In 93, Bill Clinton, they, they, because the, there's this other thing where like, you know, the economy went, to, went south in the early 90s and, and Republicans' minds, it, it all got connected. 
Bush raised taxes. The economy went south. Bush lost re-election in 92. Therefore, that's what happened when you raised taxes. And you, you've not had, in a generation since, a Republican vote for raising taxes. Interesting. Um, I have to tell you, though, when I was reading your book, I've really felt that a lot of what's... I'm a millennial. So for what we're seeing in the media now, how Trump and a lot of this negativity and just this divide is somehow new. And it's like, it wasn't ever like this. But reading your book, what struck me is, yes, it was. It was pretty much just as tribal, I guess. What's your opinion? Because I feel like in all of us working in the media and today, I feel like, especially looking at this, like, oh, this is so new. What we're going through is just awful. It's right. morally awful. But no, I don't know. Because this was a lesson for me who just knew basic info. But learning how tribal it was and how already a lot of the foundation had been set for the anti-immigration, a lot of this rhetoric, I, I had no idea was set up at this time. I think what, what was, there have been like a lot of what we see now, there have been strains of in American history. I mean, the, you could, the cliche almost is to say we fought a civil war, but you know, we fought a civil war. So, I mean, these things have gone deep. They've been ugly before. And there have been these moments of just like profound division in this country. I think what was unique about the 90s and what I try to try to sort of, uh, the story I try to tell in the book is that all of this division, all these dividing lines in the country ended up sort of syncing up with political party. And I think that was the new thing about the 1990s, um, where by the end of the decade, party had almost become... Um, it was almost a form of identity for people, um, cultural identity. Whereas party used to be, I, I guess I'm a Republican, and, and what does that mean? Are you a liberal Republican from the Northeast? Are you a, you know, isolationist from the Midwest? They, they had all these like all this ideological diversity used to be under that under that banner. And the Democrats you used to say I'm a Democrat, and you could mean you know, I'm a union guy from the Northeast. No, I'm a I'm a, 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 a very conservative, uh, you know, Southerner. Uh, no, you know, I'm an African-American who was enfranchised because of the Democratic Party. Well, I mean, like, it used to mean all sorts of different things. And by the end of the 90s, you could just look at the, the basic cultural and demographic and regional fault lines in this country, and they sorted out with party. The South, the white South, was, was heavily Republican. You know, the college-educated Northeast, increasingly Democratic. It just, the, the lines were very clear by the end of the decade. So who do you think, and what struck me was the tangential characters who are not so tangential because it turns out that history... Um, made them a lot more relevant than at the time. You look at somebody like Pat Buchanan. Yeah. Was Pat Buchanan the harbinger for Donald Trump? I mean, you look at where the Republican Party is now, and you look at where the Republican Party was when George Bush was their standard bearer, and then you have Pat Buchanan not winning New Hampshire, but everybody by default thought he won New Hampshire by virtue of doing so well in a state yeah. that was in, you'd think, was in George Bush's bailiwick because he is a Yankee yeah. Republican, as you said. And here comes um, Pat Buchanan talking about nativism, talking about immigration, talking about all the issues that you see Republicans talking about today that Republicans back then didn't really talk about. In fact, Reagan was the architect of the 1986 amnesty bill. Right. And here comes Pat Buchanan essentially jettisoning Reaganism to some extent. Um, was he the harbinger? Was Ross Perot the harbinger? Who I, was it? Yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think Buchanan is just for the, the policy platform. It's in, in some cases, it's word for word. What, right. what Buchanan was running on in the 1990s um, it, it turned into what Trump ran on in, in 2016. Um, I think there was some Perot in it in that Perot in the 90s showed there was sort of a way to crash the two parties. 
Um, you could take money, you could take uh, some sort of celebrity, you could find new avenues through this expanding media environment to bypass the traditional gatekeepers. You know, Ross Perot in 92 basically announced his candidacy on Larry King Live on CNN. And this, this is pre-social media. This viral movement sprouted up in the spring of 92 that got Ross Perot on the ballot everywhere. I mean, in Texas, the state of Texas, um, two months after he says this on Larry King Live, they submit a quarter of a million ballot signatures to get this guy on the ballot. Like, like that's that. So I think Trump was in, Trump's sort of sense of politics was informed by that. It was informed by Gingrich um, and, and, and a lot of what Gingrich did. But I think I think Buchanan, the platform is Buchanan because Buchanan was running on you know unfair trade deals. We're going to rip them up. We're going to revive American manufacturing. We're going to have he called it a fence. Trump called it a wall, but we're going to have a fence along the Mexican border. We're going to have a moratorium for five years on all immigration because there's just been too much cultural change in this country. He railed against you know multiculturalism, political correctness. Um, it, it, it was you just look at it, and you say this is what Buchanan did a gener- what Trump did a generation later, um, and what Buchanan was revealing. He ran three times in the course of the decade for president. He revealed that there was a bigger market for that in the Republican side than the Republican Party at the time would ever have admitted or ever believed. Um, he kind of revealed it. He forced them to kind of confront it. And his, his, the closest he came to the nomination was in 96, the second time he ran. And he actually won a couple primaries. And, and, and there was this moment, brief, but there was a moment for a couple weeks there when Republican leaders had to stare at this possibility of, oh, this, is this party, are our voters actually going to nominate this guy? And they mobilized around Bob Dole, the establishment, and they were able to stop him. But I kept thinking of that 20 years later in 2016, because that moment came with Trump. You know, the Republican leaders are saying, are are the voters of our party actually going to do this? But then they did it. But, you know, I'm going to read you a quote from your book. Um, Jim Squires, who was Mm pro's spokesperson, Mm -hmm. said this this incredible quote, which really struck me. He said, the next time the man on the white horse comes, he may not be so benign, speaking about Ross Perot. He could be a real racial hater or a divider of people. And I read that and I said, oh, my God. This is just absolutely, I think Democrats feel very strongly, Republicans would disagree, but this is what a lot of Democrats feel very strongly is happening to the country with Donald Trump. And to me, Perot was kind of Trump-esque. I mean, he was this bombastic guy, a celebrity in his own right. Um, I think, practically speaking, a real billionaire, but um, a, a rich guy who really had built a successful business and didn't come from the political establishment. And again, was a benign guy. I mean, I remember, and this is just going back to my own recollection of this, kind of seemed as a joke. Nobody really took him that seriously. But you had celebrities like Cher, I remember, was obsessed with Ross Perot. Yeah. Willie Nelson liked Willie Nelson. Yeah. I mean, all these random celebrities were coming out of the yeah. woodwork. Um, and I remember thinking about Ross Perot. Okay, this guy's not going to be president. He's kind of a one-off. And Saturday Night Live had these great skits about him. But um, you think about the fact that Ross Perot really kind of also, in addition to Buchanan ideologically, from a stylistic standpoint, seems to me, set the template for a rich celebrity coming in who was benign for a man who may not be so benign and now is president in the United States. The, it's the idea of, it's the, the contradiction in terms, but the populist rich guy. Right. And that's what, I mean, that's, Perot had this like um, Texan, he had that like kind of like Texan salesman, you know, um, he had very folksy expressions and he could, what he was, the atmosphere he walked into in, into the early 1990s was one of, there was a, a deep vein of frustration in the electorate. The economy was not in a good place. Um, it was it was in this this sort of period of, of transition. You know, the manufacturing base was in decline. The, the information age, um, you know, employment. We had a recession of the early 1990s. There was the sense that the United States maybe 
especially with the Cold War ending, was going to be eclipsed economically. Back then, it was Japan, but you know, China is, is what you could substitute now if you're trying to draw parallels between the two. And Perot stepped in, and there had been a series of scandals in Washington. There's been the Keating Five scandal, the House banking scandal. They were they were bouncing, you know, members of Congress were bouncing hundreds of checks at the House Bank. They weren't having to pay overdraft fees for them. Um, and Perot stepped in as this sort of this 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 appealing, plain-spoken guy. Who's so on the one hand he had the populist appeal there. He'd say, "I got advice for these members of Congress. You know, go fly coach, lose your bags, carry your own luggage. You know, and and, and he'd talk like that." Um, but he also had the 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 fact that the guy was worth three billion dollars um, was a powerful signal to voters that he knew how to get things done. That's what Washington needs. Look how broken Washington is. Look how the economy is is off track right now. Look how America's losing its place in the world. This is what these Washington politicians don't know, you know, what they're doing, this guy will set them straight. That was the core appeal of Perot. And in a way, that is what, what Trump was running. I mean, I alone can fix it, mm-hmm. is, a, is a Perot-like message. Now, I, I mean, Trump took the, took the message. It, 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 there's some overlap there in terms of their message, too, in that, that Perot also hated trade deals. Perot hated NAFTA, Perot hated GATT, that sort of thing. So there was some overlap there as well. Um, but Trump, yes, he took it culturally, in a direction pro never went with it. Right. I also have to give credit, like um, another point that you brought up was about how Newt Gingrich in the 80s used C-SPAN. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting and in how he kind of used the media and was one of the first people to kind of take advantage of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I mean, just because now what the media is, is quadruple, but the fact that I have to give him credit, unfortunately, but for realizing that. Well, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great point because... Um, I think there's a, when I say there's a there's Gingrich parallels with Trump, um, that's a big one I think because Gingrich in the 1980s was a backbench member of the Republican Party in Congress, the minority party. He's a backbencher. His fellow Republicans don't take him seriously, and he's trying to get attention. And he's he knows he's not going to get his colleagues' attention by working with them on legislation. That's not going to be his model. He needs to get grassroots excitement. That's it's a, How do you get the attention of the grassroots? In the 1980s, you really didn't have cable news. CNN had just come around. Not many people watched it. There was you know, no internet, no social media, no MS, no Fox. Um, he recognized there was a camera through C-SPAN on the floor of the House. And he felt, well, here's my chance. I'm going to start claiming time on the House floor late at night you know, when no one else wants it, no one else thinks it's worth anything, no one else is in the chamber to hear it, but the camera's there. And he starts, essentially, you'd, you'd almost recognize what he was doing as a cable news talk show. You know, he's, he's railing against national Democrats, he's railing against liberals, he's giving you his version of what conservatism is. He's got his friends doing it with him, he's got his guests, his co-hosts, whatever you want to call it. And they start getting, you know, people are, you know, cable every year, a couple million people in the 80s are getting cable boxes in their houses. They're scanning the dial at night, and a certain percentage of them land on C-SPAN. They start watching it, and they like it. And that's how Gingrich starts getting noticed by his colleagues, his Republican colleagues. They start getting mail. They start getting phone calls. They start hearing from their own voters, you know, who are taking this guy Newt seriously. These are Republican members who haven't taken him seriously at all. And so Gingrich found a way around what at the time was a very limited media atmosphere. He found his way around it through C-SPAN. And the straight line I think you can draw to Trump is... Trump comes along a generation later in a much more diverse media environment, but he still wanted to find a way around the gatekeepers, and he did that, I think, through Twitter. I think what C-SPAN was for, for Gingrich, Twitter ended up being for Trump. The question about Gingrich is, and this is somebody who, who does politics for a living, is you almost have to admire him because 
ideology went out the window, comedy went out the window, everything went out the window. Everything was all about winning. And you, know, you, you think about that from the perspective of somebody who was interested in getting a Republican majority for the first time in 40 years. Nothing mattered other than winning, whether it was destroying Bob Michael, his own predecessor, or Jim Wright, um, the speaker at the time, or Bill Clinton to the extent that he tried and couldn't. Um, winning was, it all, was all, that was all it was. And then you take that parallel again to what you hear about Donald Trump today, where Donald Trump was talking about Brett Kavanaugh, and he said, it doesn't matter, we won. So it doesn't really matter yeah. what I said about Brett Kavanaugh's accuser, we won. And Republicans respond to that. And mm -hmm. Democrats, I think there's a lot of, bringing it back to today, a lot of acrimony within the Democratic Party about whether when they go low, we go high, or whether when they go low, we go low also just to, to win. There's no question that Newt Gingrich would have gone as low as he wanted to. And as much as you could think he's a toxin on the body politic, or was to some extent, you could also admire him for the fact that he single-handedly restored the Republican Party on the Hill, I think, in ways that nobody else before him could. Mr. Nice Guy couldn't. Right. All these other nice guys who um, were his predecessors couldn't. It was Newt Gingrich who did it, no matter what his tactics were. And, and I think that's the thing that, that you have to say, too, just in terms of looking at Newt's rise. Um, a forgotten aspect is Democrats had controlled the House since 1954, and it wasn't even close. You know, we've got a midterm election in a couple of weeks where Democrats need to pick up 23 seats to get the House. It's totally doable. I don't know if they will, but it's, it's doable, and it's, it's completely within the realm of possibility. Elections in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, nobody was saying, hey, maybe the Republicans will get it this year. It was completely out of the question. It was just a question of how buried they'd be. And so in that atmosphere, the, the, the speaker's gavel becomes this, like, hereditary instrument that's one 70-year-old Democrat hands it down to another every 10 years, and that's kind of how the speaker's... And, and, and what happens is the, 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 the institution calcifies in a lot of ways. And what Gingrich was telling Republicans was there was an ideological component to it, but he was also telling them they are trampling all over you. They are taking their power for granted. They are abusing it. They are not thinking about you. They don't care about you. They don't have to care about you. He was You're, right. Right. And that was the thing that happened in the 80s, I think, was the Democrats gave him openings to basically prove himself right. They did it, you know, they, 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 they chose in 1985, there'd been this congressional election in Indiana. The outcome was in dispute. Democrats had the power if they wanted to use it to vote to seat their own candidate. They did. Um, you know, Jim Wright replaced Tip O'Neill as speaker. Wright was very strategic, very ruthless, I think, in a lot of ways, how he was going to use a speakership. He would hold votes open, something Tom DeLay would do years later and drive Democrats nuts with. Well, Jim Wright did it in 1987. And it was, in fact, it was right after Wright held a particular vote open. It was on a tax hike that he wanted, and Republicans thought they had the votes to stop him. Wright won by one, uh, excuse me, the Republicans won by one vote to stop him. And they're celebrating on the House floor. The clock goes down to zero, they got the votes, and then it's not called. And there's, there's Wright ordering that the votes stay open, and he gets a Democrat from Texas to come back from his office, a Democrat who Wright you know, helped fund, get him into office in the first place. Democrat comes to the chamber and says, you know what, I've reconsidered, I'm voting yes. Boom, bill passes. And that was, it was like a week after that that Newt Gingrich held his press conference to announce he was going to file an ethics complaint against Jim Wright over his book royalties. And I think it's, that was a, such a key moment because that was like shooting a general. It wasn't done in Congress. You didn't go after the speaker on ethics charges. I mean, today, that would, no, people wouldn't think anything of it. This was the first time. 1987, when Gingrich launches this war on Jim Wright, and he does it after that moment I just described. And it's so important because the Republican leadership 
would have reined him in, at that moment had the power to rein him in. And if it hadn't been for that moment, I think they would have. But they were so angry at Jim Wright. They were feeling it too. They weren't gonna join, they weren't gonna sign up and put their names on Newt's thing, not at first at least. But they were, you know what? Maybe it's good to have the attack dog out there doing this Jim Wright. Maybe he deserves it. And that's all he needed. I And I also love the fact, like, for example, when you had Newt, I learned a lot of this was a great history lesson for me, like how he blasted Connie Chung after that interview where it was revealed that he called Hillary Clinton a bitch. I, I thought that was, and then also using derogatory terms for a woman and that kind of going just, that's not the issue, even though it is an issue. And then he lied about the drug use and, and it was just a straight lie in the Clinton administration. Just kind of the foundation he set, just you can lie, you can derogatory terms about women will kind of go next door. And then lying, talking about the lying media, kind of. And, and, and it was, this is the, this is the, the moments you're describing too, um, I think are important because they're all, the dividing line in Newt's career, I think one of the big ones obviously is 1994. Because 94 is the Republican revolution and he leads them to where he's been telling them for years he's gonna lead them, the congressional majority, which they never thought they were gonna get. And he becomes Speaker of the House. And the, the key there is, Newt's vision was to nationalize politics and make it a choice between these two parties. And at that point, he had succeeded, like he had half succeeded. The whole country was revolting against Clinton and the Democratic Party, and it was enough to make Gingrich speaker. And Gingrich figures, now we're gonna run him out of town. We're gonna run Clinton out of town, we're gonna run the Democratic Party into extinction. But because of that success, Newt Gingrich now is suddenly a national figure, international figure, in a way he'd never been before. And what Newt Gingrich was for the first time to the average voter in this country was the face of the Republican Party. And that meant the things you're describing, they're hearing, Washington had been hearing him talk this way for a long time. The average voter is hearing Newt Gingrich talk this way for the first time. Call Bill and Hillary Clinton counterculture McGovernics. You know, talk about there had been this, this tragic incident in, in South Carolina in the 94 election, this, this, in 94, uh, 1994, where this, this woman had drowned her children and Gingrich connected it casually in an interview to politics about why this is the need to elect, you know, Republicans. These things flew under the radar on his way to the top. When he got to the top in Congress, every time he said that, people heard it, people reacted. And what happened was he, he so successfully made... Bill Clinton and liberal Democrats the face, you know, the, the, this, this boogeyman that Republicans could, could draw strength from. He became the boogeyman the Democrats suddenly drew strength from on the other side. And, and half the country kind of sided up with one and half kind of with the other. You know, I'm wondering if Bernie Sanders was the canary in the coal mine for Democrats this time around the way that Pat Buchanan was back in the 90s. Mm. And I'm wondering if the party's going to go in the direction that Bernie wants it to go because, well, he didn't succeed. To me, he's got the biggest parallel going with Pat Buchanan of all in terms of the ideological... Um, effects that he had on the party going forward. And I remember saying to somebody before the election, I was convinced Hillary was going to win, but I said, but if she doesn't win, which is obviously impossible, which means that my prognostication skills are uh, being retired for the rest of my life, but I said, um, the party will go through a huge crisis because it's going to be the crisis of the same thing that the Republicans went through in the 90s, where you have the very liberal wing of the party at war with the more establishment wing of the party, the way you had with Bush and Buchanan. And I yeah. wonder if that's a good analogy in your mind, somebody who studied the 90s the way that you did? Yeah, I wonder. So the, the thing I'd say on Buchanan is that the message that he had, there clearly was an economic component to it. It was, it was you know, manufacturing jobs, trade deals, you know, it was, it was, it was that. Um, pitchfork Pat, they called him, right? Um, but it was also, it was a cultural message, you know? Um, and 
I think the Bernie message to me is an economic message. And I, I think there's my read of the Democratic Party um, is there's 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 two forces that are competing now that I see. One is economic, one's cultural. Bernie, I think, sort of embodies the, the energy on economic questions right now. It's towards this idea of Medicare for all. It's towards a more expansive government. It's towards less skepticism about the role of government. Those, those sorts of things. Um, and it's very, I think, class based. Um, I think there's a there's a very strong cultural current that. I'm not sure, and I'm curious what you think, I'm not sure he's in touch with or I'm not sure likes him that much that's about um, gender, race, ethnicity, expanding the democratic tent that way that, that's very invested in um, representation. And, you know, um, he, of course, struggled so much in 2016 to attract non-white votes, especially African-American votes in the South. Um, if he'd just done... You know, I don't know if he could have not even fought Clinton to a draw, but just on a little, I mean, he, it might have been a very different race. Um, and I wonder which side there has the, you know, has more energy. Um, I don't have an answer for it. It's just that's my read. That's kind of what I'm watching for, I guess. Yeah, but to some extent, if you think about Buchanan in the 90s, um, he, while he, he did have a populist economic message, maybe not populist the way Perot did, but an economic message, I think he put a template for the Republican Party that later... George Bush's son, to some extent, followed. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly Donald Trump, um, who's now the de facto face and has taken over the party in ways that I think nobody, no president in my memory has ever taken over a party, maybe Bill Clinton in the early 90s. But if you look at Clintonism now, that's not the case anymore. I'm not right. sure Clintonism has a place in the party the way Bill Clinton envisioned it 20 years ago. Um, Pat Buchanan today, uh, or excuse me, Pat Buchanan back in 1992, I think, had a much more interesting message where he was, as I said, the harbinger for what was to come. And I'm wondering if Bernie Sanders, in that sense, from an economic message, has that to come as well. Yes, Bernie Sanders is another old white guy um, from Vermont. He's never going to be another Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, or Cory Booker, or Hillary Clinton, for that matter. But he's also somebody who spoke to issues that I think millennials really responded to. Yeah. Um, in ways that you wouldn't think a 70-year-old white guy would. And Pat Buchanan well, he's did got, as well. Yeah, he's got, he's got the ideological program. That's, I, I think Buchanan had... Just whatever you thought of him in the 90s, he had a very detailed, thought-out, specific program. And Sanders, I think, in a way a lot of other Democrats doesn't, has this very detailed, specific program. that and It's one he was talking about 20 years ago, he's talking about now. And it, it raises the question, is this, is this the kind of template, the kind of blueprint that somebody could pick up a decade or two from now? And, and, you know, maybe it'll, it'll be a straight through line from here to there, but, you know, maybe it's something somebody can pick up 10, 20 years from now in a way that some of these other um, candidates who are more maybe personality based in their appeal, you know, what's there when you take the actual candidate away. Well, that's true, know? because I'm not really sure what imprint Barack Obama or George Bush, George Walker Bush, yeah. left on their respective parties. I mean, they just happen to be presidents, but I'm not sure that they left an imprint the way that Ronald Reagan did, for example, yeah. the way Bill Clinton did. Well, in Bush, I mean, the war, I mean, that's, it's, 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 it's the, the contested legacy. It's the, you know, like, sure. um, but right. I mean, the, the, the original Bush vision of compassionate conservatism and what that entailed is not. Yeah. There's no Bushism for either Bush for that matter, neither right. his father nor him. I right. Think. So I kind of have a question for both of you. How do we move forward from this tribalism? Do you see that happening? In the next couple of years, Julian, Steve, I don't. I don't. Are you optimistic? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. And I think you wrote the book as to why. No, I, I, I wish I could now sound the optimistic note, but like, 
I feel like the, the, the thought that kept coming back to me um, doing this was as humans were hardwired in a certain degree, to a certain degree, to be tribal, to think tribally, to behave tribally. And I think to me, the thing that's happened over the last generation or so is that our, our, our media and our politics and the way our media and our politics interact with each other, um, they, they've evolved in a way that's much more conducive to tribalism. And so you don't, you can create for your, your own personal media ecosystem now um, where you are walled off from opinions you don't want to hear or views you don't want to hear. And you're just surrounded by ones that you do. And it just, it reinforces everything and it creates more distance and it's all self-perpetuating. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know, I don't know the way, what the way out of that is, except the idea that we all, we do seem to have some, some sort of agreement out there that this isn't healthy. I, I, I hear Republicans say that and I hear Democrats say that. They have different reasons why and different people they blame, but they all, there does seem to be some agreement it's not healthy. So maybe, you know, there, there's some way that 20 years from now, we, we look back at this period and say it was this, this necessary, ugly, painful sorting out that got us somewhere better. I just don't know how to envision what the, what the somewhere better is. Just get, I mean, just, it, it's not even media. It's getting to the point where it's just technology where it's like, if, if you're politically inclined at all, uh, and that isn't everybody in the country. I realize that, but like, if you are, it's in your face every minute now, you know. And, and you almost you you, know, it's, it's, you, you, you turn on your phone and you you, you tweet. You, you stare at five tweets that make you enraged at the other side and remind you why you're on this side. And it's just it's just it's being reinforced moment to moment in, in all these different ways.